president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, has remarked that police are not police unless they kill. Rather than providing protection for many Brazilians, especially those living in favelas, police represent a threat, often a lethal threat. So how do these communities deal with such violence? My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. The year 2018 saw the highest number of police extrajudicial killings of citizens since records began in 1998. And this record was then broken in 2019, with police killing a record 1,810 people in Rio de Janeiro alone. That's a rate of more than five people per day. Brazil has risen to third place globally in terms of countries with the highest number of people held in prison and pretrial, sitting behind only the USA and China, both of which have far larger general populations. The violence and use of police powers is not indiscriminate, and J.V. Alves explains the increase in the use of prisons as a political choice to target some geographies, meaning favelas, and some particularly abject bodies, meaning brown and black people, as a scapegoats for state-produced urban insecurity, leading to what has been described as a favela-to-prison pipeline. Rita Segato has discussed the coloniality of justice, whereby norms and power dynamics from colonial past are manifested in post-colonial present, with the overrepresentation of white men in positions of power representing just one expression of this carceral continuum between slavery and the present-day penal system. Dr. Roxana Pessoa Calvacanti is a critical criminologist a member of the British Society of Criminology and the European Group for the Study of Deviance and Social Control, and Deputy Leader of the City's Injustices and Resistance Research Group at the University of Brighton. Her research has focused on the politics of crime control, justice and human rights, critical theory, and theorising social inequalities related to class, gender and ethnicity in the context of Brazil. Her new book, published by Routledge, is A Southern Criminology of Violence, Youth and Policing. It's just been released and I've been lucky enough to have a sneaky peek and I'm very happy to say she joins me today. Hello, Dr. Roxana. Hello there. Pleasure to be here. First of all, I hope you're well. How are you adjusting to the new normal? I understand that as well as a university lecturer, you're now a primary school teacher at home. Yeah, that's right. These are challenging times. Um, we're all healthy and well, which is good. The days are very, very long, as you can imagine, yeah. with um, ho- homeschooling two children and uh, moving teaching online. Yeah. But um, yeah, these are these are difficult times for everyone. Um, yeah, how are you? I'm well. I'm, I'm well. Yes, luckily, and I'm feeling very lucky to have my small corner of the universe that I can stay safe in and um, yeah trying to be productive while not putting too much pressure on myself and others to to produce when remember we are actually in a, a pandemic not a writing retreat <laughs> which I think Absolutely. a lot of people are thinking that it's the case. So just to start how would you describe the book who is it aimed at and what did you set out to achieve when you wrote it? Sure. So this book's been a long time coming. I've been working on this project um, for a number of years now. Um, 
And I think initially I wanted to write something that was uh, accessible for um, a wider audience. So mm-hmm. I, 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 I really enjoy ethnographic methods uh, and I enjoy uh, reading the voices uh, of uh, research participants and, and of, of real people in the real world. Yeah. So, um, and, and I find that that is one way in which we can um, engage uh, not only students, but practitioners, uh, people uh, working uh, in the criminal justice system, um, hopefully politicians uh, and just, you know, just general people, really. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned all those different groups then, because actually one of the reasons I wanted to make this podcast is that I've seen the great work in lots of different areas and people tend not to be able to hear about that work across different sectors. And so I want to ask you about collaboration and how you found uh, academics working with frontline practitioners and other groups. What's been your experience? At times it feels like uh, there is collaboration and partnerships. And I think at other times it feels like um, these are different groups with different interests um, and and that they don't always um, Mm. uh, work together. Um, And I think that is... That's one of the things that actually uh, the book highlights in some ways um, when I explore um, some of the new policy interventions in Brazil that initially um, were partnerships between a diversity of groups, civil society groups uh, involved in organizing it uh, in setting up the initial plans in consultations, uh, academics, you know, members of the public, uh, mm. politicians and so on. And actually... As things progress and as some of these um, interventions uh, get put into practice, um, sometimes they take different turns um, and, and some voices become marginalized, whereas others kind of uh, come to dominate discussions and, and come to dominate what uh, we understand by interventions and what they, what they actually become in practice is not necessarily what was initially planned or collaborated or collaboratively organized between these different groups so you mentioned then about some voices being marginalized and others dominating more and this leads nicely into me asking you about the emerging paradigm of southern criminology and so for the benefit of those not familiar with the idea of southern criminology this is work um, mainly from Kerry Carrington, Russell Hogg, Max Masozo, and some others that have been inspired by the early work of Southern theory by Raywin Connell. Um, part of this is related to the tendency for knowledge to be created and legitimated in certain parts of the world more than others. And another part is about acknowledging the context in many states of the global south being completely different to due to centuries of colonization. And so I wanted to ask you, how does your book fit into this broader paradigm? Sure. I was really pleased when I read, uh, I think back in 2016 or 15, when I read the work of um, uh, Carrington and her colleagues, um, when they published this um, article in the British Journal of Criminology on Southern Criminology, um, because I felt like I had been thinking about those things for a number of years and I didn't have necessarily a voice at that stage to to kind of put it uh, so neatly and so clearly. Um, you know, I was a criminology student myself. Um, I started studying criminology, well, a long time ago, it feels like now, but over 10 years ago. And um, at the time, I, I was really disappointed uh, because 
um, I found criminology really interesting, uh, but I was, you know, I was a migrant. Well, I am, I guess I settled in the UK now. I'm, I'm British now, but I'm from Brazil. And I was studying criminology in the UK. And I really felt like uh, everything that was talked about in the degree, all the theories, um, everything that we were exposed to was mm. mostly speaking to um, European Anglo-Saxon countries. Mm. I didn't feel like uh, that knowledge had much to say about places like uh, Brazil or other post-colonial uh, societies. Um, and and so, th so that felt really disappointing for me. Um, yeah. And I was really concerned with uh, the implications these had for uh, not only knowledge production, uh, but also how we represent others. Uh, you know, the, this kind of the universal narratives Mm -hmm. um, of, of, of those theories. Um, they did not account for, um, global economic inequalities, uh, for the exploitation and, uh, all the experiences of the colonized world. Um, and I, I found that was, that was really an issue that needed addressing. Um, and I think the work of Carrington began to kind of, um, yeah, it, it began to be this kind of force, this, this paradigm, this new framework in which uh, we could start thinking about some of these complex problems. Yeah, definitely. And I know that you address this directly in your book when you talk about policing practices that have been imported to Brazil from the global north. So I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. Right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, so one of the things I found um, during the field work was that... Um, and, and in some ways, um, I guess that shouldn't have surprised me, you know, um, theories like broken windows, zero tolerance policing, those kinds of uh, mainstream orthodox criminological theories have been extremely influential around the world. They have been exported around the globe. There are many, you know, security organizations and private businesses and um, and and particular academics that are promoting some of those ideas and selling some of those mm. um, solutions. Um, and, and they were noticeable in, in practice, you know, in the narratives of the uh, police uh, officers, members of the public security secretariat that are interviewed. Um, they were noticeable also in the design of the interventions themselves. Yeah. So, so to give you an example, um, in this uh, in this particular intervention in the northeast of Brazil, they had as one of their targets uh, a redu the reduction of homicides by twelve percent, uh, and they they had this um, th this particular number. You know, where did it come from? Mm. Why twelve percent? Um, and they had um, you know very similar models to 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 Compstat, the the kind of uh, uh, police performance monitoring programs that were right. uh, developed in New York and and that were influential in the 90s. Um, sort of similar um, models were being emulated, not exactly uh, identically in in the same precise way, but they were mm -hmm. being uh, adapted um, to to other contexts under yeah. this, um, you know, this I think this myth that. They, they were the solution to crime or that they, they, these programs had reduced um, levels of violence. Yeah. 
there is this kind of idea I've noticed in Brazil where assuming that if something comes from Europe or from America that it must work or it, they must know something that we don't. Is that something that you came across a lot? Yeah, for sure. And and I think this is part of uh, what, you know, post-colonial theorists talk about, you know, the, mm. the effect of colonialization on our subjectivities as well, on the ways uh, our societies um, interact and respond to, to domination and imperialism. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think that this, the, the, the colonialism is not something that stayed in the past, is a continuous process that yeah. is, still has not just a legacy, but it's still operating today. And so do you feel your book is part of the raft of work that is specifically aiming to decolonize criminology? Is that, would you fit yourself under that umbrella? Yeah, I, I would like to do that. I would like to be part of that umbrella. <laughs> I would like to fit myself <laughs> under that umbrella. What does, it's what a real challenge. to you? Yeah. It, well, exactly, right. Um, I think it's a real challenge. You know, what does decolonization yeah. mean, you know? Mm. Um, and is it even possible? You know, is it about reparation? Is it about, um, you know, voicing um, marginalized voices? Is it about encompassing uh, theories that emerge uh, in other parts of the world? Mm. So I think there are many questions that we need to still work together to answer. Um, and, and in some ways, I, I hope that at least my work is in some way trying to um, trying to give voice to marginalized uh, communities yeah. trying to, um, you know, engage with the context of yeah. other places outside the global north. Um, you know, trying to move away from this uh, white male-dominated criminology. And so could you tell us a little bit more about how through your methodology and your structure you have moved what Raymond Grisfugel called the locus of enunciation meaning the place where a person speaks or writes from, how you've moved that from a central place in the West where most knowledge is created and legitimated to the extent that it seems natural and universal, and how you've taken it and instead placed it in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I think this is a real challenge. This is a real tricky question. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a challenging question because mm. um, in some ways, you know, I, I've said I'm, I'm from Brazil and I think in some ways my my background and my motivation to to write this this book and to to study criminology um, in some ways might help me to answer this question a bit. Mm. Um, I suppose now I'm placed in the UK and I work for a British institution. I am in the global north. I feel like it, it's part of my mission to um, sabotage Eurocentrism <laughs> from within. You know, okay. to try to. Um, um, you know, actually uh, give this message that, um, you know, colonialization does matter. It's an important uh, issue. It's an ongoing process that we need to take into account and we need to, to take into account unequal power relations. Um, and so, so in my work, I suppose um, I try to use qualitative methods and, and try to use um, ethnographic methods to kind of um, allow for the voices um, mm. of, of different groups uh, to emerge uh, and to, to be um, made visible um, through this work. Um, I was also very uh, keen on uh, um, 
I suppose in some ways using a, a feminist methodology in the sense that um, I was trying to engage with issues of power, uh, but also trying to see, uh, trying to to engage with with the pers- personal issues as political issues, personal mm-hmm. issues as as not individual issues, but as as public issues, uh, and and I suppose that kind of takes me back to to my motivation to write the work and to study criminology. Um, you know, I grew up in Brazil, um, and when I was a teenager. Uh, back in in the 90s, um, there was a there was a police strike uh, in in Pernambuco, mm-hmm. um, where my family lived. And even though you know police strikes are uh, illegal, they are not uncommon in Brazil. Uh, at that time, um, you know there were armed men circulating the city, uh, especially low-income neighborhoods. Uh, there, were no, there was no effort to kind of uh, hide their weapons. Uh, you know, a series of armed robberies were taking places, executions, and so on. Um, and it is at that time that um, in one of these low-income neighborhoods on the edges of the city, um, um, a man called Adalto, um, indigenous father of 10, uh, had a small bakery in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he took his rifle with him to work during the strikes because he, he had this idea that, um, this is going to help him, you know, save his family, protect his family, pr- protect the wages of his employees. You know, he was due to pay his employees. He paid them in cash at the end of the month. Yeah. And numerous times he'd had, um, armed robbers, uh, you know, come, come to his bakery and steal his, uh, his safe. So, you know, apparently in the past, the static of taking a gun to work had worked for him. He'd managed to to scare any robbers away. Um, but of course, this this one time it didn't work. Um, you know, when they pointed a gun at him, mm-hmm. and he picked up his rifle, um, he was shot first. He was shot um, point blank, and he he died straight away. You know, his wife was there. Uh, at the time, he watched it. She watched the incident. Mm. Um, you know, they, they they got the neighbors to take them to hospital, but you know, he by the time they got there, he was dead. Yeah. Um, and and five years later, um, in another in a uh, in another part of the city, in a middle class part of the city, his Adalto's grandson um, was was leaving school with his uh, his best friend, um, and and. They um, they were waiting for a bus at a bus stop in the afternoon. Um, another child approached them and asked them to um, to hand over their wallets, their watches, mm-hmm. and Adalto's grandson handed over everything. But his best friend Joaquin he got really scared and he he ran. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the the child with a gun um, shot Joaquin on the back. Um, Adalto's grandson tried to stop a car to, to take them to hospital. Uh, you know, eventually someone stopped and, and allowed, um, allowed Joaquin, allowed him to put Joaquin in the boot of the car. And he's there, you know, um, trying to, to hold his best friend, um, on the way to hospital. You know, he's, he's described it, you know, his best friend trying to talk to him and say something, but he can't make out what he's saying and there's, mm. there's blood coming out of his mouth. You know, by the time they, they got to hospital, his best friend was was dead. Um, so, you know, those, those were really painful memories. And for me, they yeah. were quite remarkable because, you know, I'm also Adalto's granddaughter. 
and the boy who tried to save his best friend is my brother. So, you yeah. know, um, in some ways I see this as a political issue, you know, the, the violence that we have in Brazil, uh, the system that is trying to deal with it, all of those issues, um, I think they are political issues and they are not individual issues because these are issues that are affecting thousands of people in Brazil. They're affecting our, all of our society. They are structural issues. Um, and, and so I think, I think in some ways I try to engage with a methodology in which I was not trying to pretend that I am an objective mm -hmm. researcher. I think my methodology is value-laden, um, that I, I have a positionality and I have lived experiences that are important to understand uh, my vested interest in the topic, um, but also to conceptualize these issues and the yeah. circumstances in which they are um, they exist as as wider issues, really. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that the very personal story related to the situation that you're describing. And um, I know the book is full of lots of interviews with individuals recounting specific stories and uh, incidents that happened to them. Um, when you could you tell us a little bit more, maybe about the communities that you chose to uh, interview and observe, and um, that's what we mean when we say ethnographic studies. So could you tell sure. us a bit more about how you chose them and, and uh, how you went about it? Um, sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to engage with the voices of the everyday Brazilian person in some ways, mm. but of course, when you are doing a research project, you've got to narrow it down to yeah. something that's actually achievable uh, and to um, in, in, I suppose in, when you're doing when you're using ethnographic methods you need to get quite close to um, to the people you are um, studying with and and, and um, learning about so um, I chose two communities um, in Hesifi that uh are considered uh, low-income communities. Mm -hmm. um, access to, to those communities in some way had to happen through a, a, a network. So I had a, a, a network of professional in, in professional sense and also in a personal sense. So I have a, you know, I still have family and friends in Brazil. So I know mm. a lot of people specifically in this city. Um, and in one of the communities, I managed to get access through... Um, uh, an NGO, uh, non-governmental organizations that worked uh, with uh, a network of other organizations uh, working in in communities that face some kind of hardship. Mm. So I entered entered the community through this this organization, and in some ways that that was an amazing experience because um, the organization I was involved with was really uh, well liked in the community because they were providing a lot of um, support for people, you know, mm. uh, free childcare, arts workshops, sports workshops. Uh, um, all kinds of like, interesting activities and they really wanted to, um, you know, to help the people in the community. So, so they were well liked, which meant that it, it, it was easier for me to, to gain trust, I suppose, and to, uh, to access, uh, you know, the voices of the residents, you know, they, they were happy to speak to me because I was a friend of uh, the people who were doing this important work in the community. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and in the other community, um, I gained access through a local school. Um, so I was really speaking with quite uh, with much with younger, I suppose, um, members of the community. Um, and it was also a really interesting experience, quite different, uh, because on one of the communities, they, you know, they're really politically engaged. Uh, and in the other one, it was through the school. So it's in some ways a bit more of an institutionalized uh, a way of going about it. And so you, yeah. you, you come across um, um, different voices, I suppose. Uh, but actually, there were so many similarities in what was happening in both of the communities. And what kind of questions were you asking them? A lot of questions, actually, and I think I've, I've learned some lessons from from that experience. That I probably shouldn't ask that many questions, because okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know I, I just wanted to know everything. You know, yeah. I wanted to know, and yeah. and actually, I should have kind of um, you know narrowed it down a bit more. Um, but I did ask them all kinds of questions at the time uh, about you know. Um, how uh, they felt about the places where they lived, um, about what they thought about the police, uh, about mm-hmm. whether anything had changed in their communities. Things they've they'd had these um, uh, new interventions uh, set up, these new criminal justice interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, had they seen any changes, and w- w- had they those changes been positive in any way or negative? Or um, you know, I I asked them about their. Um, their family background, their socioeconomic background. Um, yeah, I, I, asked, I asked them a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> and were, you, were there any things that particularly surprised you that you weren't expecting for people to say? Um, yeah, sure. At times there were. For some people, actually, it surprised me that they they actually wanted more police. Like really? a lot of people said that. That surprised me a lot because I thought – um, you know, your relationship with the police mm. seems to be terrible. Like what you're telling me about them is awful. How, mm-hmm. but you know, people have this desire for, for safety, this desire for security. And, and in some, and for some people, they believe that they actually, they wanted more policing. They just didn't want the kind of policing that they had. Okay. So they did think that there was a role for the police in kind of protecting them. They wanted to have, an institution that they could call mm-hmm. uh, if something went wrong, you know. They wanted an institution that, you know, if if they got burgled or if something happened, if someone stole something from them or yeah. they wanted to be able, if someone got raped in the community, they would like to have an institution that they could call and that would come to the rescue. But that was not the kind of policing that they got. So yeah. um, they didn't want that kind of policing, yeah. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, that did surprise me that they wanted more policing. I thought that they would be like, nope, I wouldn't want anything to do with the police. Yeah. But that, that was not the case. <laughs> yeah, and I know there's this popular phrase that says, for my friends, anything, for my enemies, the law. Yeah. That suggests that the law is seen as something yeah. very external to the community. That's right, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some people had, some people were like, they were totally like, you know, I've lo- we've lost hope in the police. They they are they are mm-hmm. just here as the Capitan do Mato, they described it. So the Capitan do Mato is, mm-hmm. is uh, you know, um, a character from the, uh, a figure, I suppose, from the colonial times uh, is, 
who used to capture slaves. So, you know, sometimes yeah. these would sometimes be an ex-slave who would then get the the job of uh, of Capitão do Mato, uh, which was to, you know, gain some status and in 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 that setting, but also. Um, they had this job of capturing, you know, fugitive slaves, and so so some people saw the police as that, you know, as 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 these uh, um, corrupt institution in some ways that had no place for them or no place in their lives. Yeah, I noticed recently um, there was somebody called um, Sergio Camargo Nascimento who's been made the new chief of the Palmeiras Foundation, mm-hmm. which is a publicly funded institute whose main duty is to protect and promote the cultures of peoples of Afro-descendant Brazilians. Um, and he specifically said he's denied racism is an issue in Brazil and he's oh. defended slavery, and, oh, but he's no. the one that's been put in charge of um, celebrating black culture. Oh, um, God, it's and, awful. And, yeah, I mean, he's saying, oh, Brazilians are playing the race card and maybe we should even send some Brazilians black, uh, forcibly back to, to the Congo, for example. Mm-hmm. I only bring it up because um, he's been called uh, Capitão de Mato as well. Ah, yeah. So, yeah, it seems to be a term that people keep returning to to show that people are somehow sold out by others in their own community and that race remains an issue. And I know that you discuss race as a factor that influences an individual's interaction with police. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I, yeah, I do think you know this this idea of a racial democracy is is total nonsense. You know, um, mm. it's you know for people that are not familiar with this this notion, you know, is yeah. this idea that um, you know due to miscegenation and social mixing and so on is this this create this idea that racism apparently doesn't exist in Brazil, mm. uh, which is total nonsense. Uh, you know, if you if you spend any time in Brazil, uh, you will see that. There is a lot of racism, and if you speak with Brazilian people, you will hear a lot of racism, mm. um, and that is that goes from, you know, everyday discussions um, to all kinds of of social interactions. So even things like, for example, um, you know, people's hair. So so Brazilian mm. people say uh, cabelo cabelo bom, which mm. means good hair. They refer to that as as straight hair. So yeah. If your hair is not straight, that means bad hair. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's non- it's racism yeah. in 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 the everyday life, you know. So so it, it's it's embedded into yeah. all of all of our society, and sometimes in subtle ways. Um, for, especially you know, for an eye that is not sociologically trained, people might not notice it. But it also, is sometimes in very explicit mm-hmm. ways. I think now with uh, with people like um, you know, people in the far right. Um, like the example you gave, you know, shows how, how yeah. more explicit uh, it's becoming, I think. Yeah. And in the stats of police killings and the number of people in prison, it's always disproportionately people of mixed heritage or black Brazilians that, that are overpopulated in that situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, just before we move on to the next section, I just wanted to touch on the fact that when you were doing your fieldwork, you you were pregnant as well, right? Yes, so that's were, right, yeah. And um, you take such a reflective approach, you actually talk about how you think people reacted to you differently when you were um, conducting your interviews because you were pregnant. I wondered if you could t- talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I do think that uh, pregnancy helped me in my field work. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. it, pregnancy is a very challenging time. You know, you feel yeah. tired. Um, you need to go to loads of different appointments. Uh, mm. And, you know, some people feel sick for a long time. Um, I was quite lucky in the sense that I was only really sick for a couple of months. Um, but um, I think in some ways uh, people felt like, they connected with me more mm. and they felt like I wasn't uh, a threat uh, because, you know, I was just this pregnant woman who, you know, was crazy enough to be uh, doing her field work in these places <laughs> that, um, you know, people feared, you know, people yeah. feared these places. They feared the people in these places. Yeah. Uh, but I think also the, the fact that I was going to have a child, that I was going to have a family, I think that meant we had things in common, you know, we had mm. this, this, this theme of family and, and I did, I think I did look, um, you know, non-threatening for them. Um, so yeah. I, 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 w I wasn't likely to be like a police informant or something like that. Yeah. Um, and, and, so, so I do, I do think that it did help me, um, you know, bond with people in, in a different way. And of course, people are very curious, you know, they were like, they wanted to know, you know, am I going to have a boy? Is it a girl? Mm. What would I call the child? You know, is it going to be an English name? Is it going to be a Brazilian right. name? Um, so, you know, that kind of sparked informal discussions, which then, you know, brought us closer together, I think. I really wanted to... Um, to kind of do some kind of, uh, I don't know, some kind of work that was not academic necessarily in the mm. community. Um, so in one, I offered to, to teach English if anyone wanted to learn English, another language or anything like that. Yeah. And in, in, in one of the organizations um, in one of the communities said, oh, well, no, we don't think that's a good idea because you're pregnant. Uh and uh, in the other community, they were like, yeah, sure, do it, go ahead. And yeah. it was actually a great experience in the one where I actually did some classes. You know, the children I was teaching, they were so appreciative. They were like, you know, can you please stay? Uh, we, we, we love having a teacher. We love having classes. You know, they were in schools where often, you know, teachers were on temporary contracts and sometimes they wouldn't turn up. And, yeah. and so... These were quite, you know, um, kids that were going through hardship and they had kind of the worst um, schooling that you could find. Um, and so, so they were actually, they were actually really eager, you know, they just didn't have the opportunities. Okay. So you'd recommend before doing field work, being pregnant is a... Uh... <laughs> it's something you could prepare. To. <laughs> Might not help me for my field work next time. <laughs> yeah. Well, unfortunately, yeah. No. I think you know things that can prepare for field work. Uh, you know, for other students, it, it definitely need to be you know, uh, uh, humane, friendly. You know, you need yeah. to be kind to people. Um, I think you know if you have any skill that you can offer. Um, I know that other people engage with the same communities after me yeah. um through other means you know teaching arts workshops or boxing or um you know giving a bit of your time you know the thing we have mm. that's so precious is our time um yeah. and i think all the researchers have used all the skills you know they've it provided you know free childcare, um all kinds of uh, of yeah. um things like that that you know just if you can help in any way, uh, help help other people, I think that definitely um, allows you know bridges and partnerships to be built and, and collaborations. 
I really like the way you reflect specifically on your own positionality because I think a lot of people don't factor that in. You know, they think about themselves as a researcher as being completely separate from the investigation themselves, and and you very clearly show that you know your your particular positionality is part of your in, interpretation of the data that you're capturing. Yeah, yeah, I believe I believe that. Great. Okay, so let's um. Let's move on to the next section where um, we're going to hear a small extract from the book. Oh, yeah, sure. Great. And this, so this is from Chapter 6, which is titled Life, Crack and Violence in the Favelas. And in this extract, we get to hear part of one of your interviews that you've conducted. So before we hear that, can you tell us a little bit about where you are at this point, set the scene, who you're speaking to and why? Okay, sure. Um, so just to set the scene, I was in the community which I called Vitoria. This is all, all the names have been changed. These are not the real names of the community, but yes. you know, for the sake yeah. of of clarity. So I'm in Vitoria, um, and uh, you know, I was um, speaking with. Um, um, a friendly elderly resident um, mm. in in the community, and you know we people wanted to know what I was doing there. You know what what was my research and what am I writing about? And and sometimes I kind of summarize that as about you know I'm I'm trying to write about injustice and or the criminal justice mm. system or something like that. And and she said to me, oh my gosh, you must definitely you know you must speak to Seu Antonio. You know a great injustice happened to him, mm. um, and 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 according to her, you know this is going to really show you how the Brazilian state treats the poor. Um, so, you know, she actually arranged the, uh, for me to meet Seu Antonio at her house right. one afternoon. Um, and, you know, he, she said, you know, he's going to be here anyway. So this is kind of the Brazilian jeitinho, you know, people kind yeah. of find ways yeah. to accommodate each other and to be friendly. Anyway, so he was going to be there to fix the sink in her house. So she, she said, you know, I've got some housework to do. You can have a chat with him. Um, and and I'm like, okay, sure, I will I will <laughs> go and have and chat to him. Great, okay. Well let, let's hear it. So Antonio was a short, frail looking man, slim and dark skinned. His face and hands had many wrinkles. I imagined he was in his early sixties, but in fact he was only forty eight. His appearance resulted from years of hard labour and suffering. Despite the relative power asymmetry between researcher and informant, Seu Antonio was very receptive and keen to tell me his story, which emphasised his identity as a worker rather than a bandido. Seu Antonio explained that he was arrested in Alto do Pinhal, an even less affluent part of the neighbourhood where he had met Dona Lala and her family before they moved. During his move, he had been a close friend of one of Dona Lala's ten children. Prior to our meeting, he was unfairly sentenced and incarcerated for three years and had been to five different prisons. The following excerpt tells Seu Antonio's story. Roxana, here I quote. Can you tell me more about how the arrest happened? Seu Antonio. At that time, I was in the habit of drinking alcohol with a friend in Alto do Pinhal. He invited me for a beer at his house. I was sitting in the living room, and he went to the kitchen to get something. I didn't know, but he was rolling marijuana. I never smoked that stuff. I didn't know he smoked. He was selling it too. He pauses, waiting for a reaction or for some questions. Roxana, 
So what happened after your friend was in the kitchen? So Antonio, some police entered the house with guns and arrested everyone. Me too. I couldn't understand what was going on. They took me, didn't want to know that I had nothing to do with the drugs. In court, the safado, shameless, dishonest person, his friend, incriminated me. He said I was involved too. I had no money to pay the lawyer, who wanted 2,000 reais, the equivalent of 700 pounds at the time, to free me, but I couldn't pay. In prison, people with money don't stay more than two or three days. The son of a shop owner I met inside left in two days because his father paid. End quote. This type of heavy-handed rage or occasional policing is common in Brazil's most marginalized communities and slums. So Antonio finds it necessary to assert his innocence by explaining he had nothing to do with the drugs and never smoked, emphasizing that he stayed in prison only because he could not pay the lawyer, while the son of a shop owner paid and became free. For Sir Antonio, this was not an option. Having migrated from the country's dry lands with his mother and siblings to Recife, he had to leave school at age 10 to work and support the household. So Antonio's case is one of many stories in which the poor and often black people are criminalized and receive differential treatment from all the institutions of the criminal justice system because of their socioeconomic circumstances. When asked what prison was like, so Antonio said he was respected by inmates and was never beaten because his recorded offense was not seen as serious enough. He said that for the most part, prisoners only persecuted people who committed sexual offenses or those who had hit their mothers. For these inmates, seen as undeserving, their only perceived solution was death by beating. Here lies another telling episode of the blurred boundaries of injustice. Well, great. Thank you, Roxana. Um, Before we get into that, what made you choose this particular part of the book to read? Ah, okay, interesting. You know, um, I felt like this was a really powerful account for me Mm. at the time um, because um, for a number of reasons, I think. In some ways, it kind of showed to me that actually – a lot of uh, a lot of the police work that was going on and a lot of the securitization that was going on was really about the war on drugs. Right. It wasn't necessarily about um, really um, addressing violence or lethal violence. Um, I mean, this is the, the the kind of the main rationale of the intervention was to address violence. But actually what we saw in practice was there was a lot of this, um, you know, drugs policing mm. going on. And I, I see that as as really problematic. Um, you know, people like Seu Antonio, they're getting caught up in this net. They're getting criminalized yeah. because they are people that are in marginalized positions, in marginalized communities. Um, you know, they are people um, that are the victims of um, racism, institutional racism. Um, they are the people that don't have a voice. They don't have money to pay a lawyer. Um, and, and people like him, um, you know, they are staying in prison for um, so many years, sometimes, you know, in many cases waiting for a trial. Uh, 
And, you know, he was found innocent. But by that time, he had been in prison for so many years already. Um, and th this is really problematic. Brazilian jails are full of people who did not commit very serious offenses. Yeah. Uh, we have, you know, such a large prison population. I believe now the third largest prison population in the world. Um, and, you know, this generates all kinds of other problems. Um, as you know from your own research as well. I know sending more and more people to prison. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned this war on drugs. That wasn't born in Brazil. We associate it more with Mayor Giuliani in, in New York, in the USA. But now you're talking about it in, in Brazil. So is there a specific kind of Brazilian flavor to the war on drugs that, that you could speak to? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, you know, I think this, there's a lot of regional difference in Brazil. Um, so, you know, when you speak to, mm. when you are in, in places like Rio, you have uh, very organized groups uh, in, in favelas. You have uh, uh, highly armed groups. Uh, and and that, the situation is slightly different in Recife, in the northeast of Brazil. Yes, there are lots of firearms everywhere. Uh, I don't think they, mm. um, we, we don't have the same level of organization in terms of uh, organized uh, criminal groups as, as the southeast of Brazil. Um, but we do have this this same thing that it, you know it's all about uh, a lot of it is about drugs you know a lot of it is this concern mm. with um, it, you know with apprehending drugs um, and and kind of you know we see a, there's a similarity in the sense that the people that are being criminalized the people that are being targeted the people that society and the police see as bandits as bandidos mm. are often are often simply, you know, the poor, they are poor people. Um, yeah. So I think in some ways, yeah, we do have an, an issue with the war on drugs. It's, it's not it's not going to be what you saw in films like City of God or or Elite Squad, you know, in those films where you get yeah. the, the police having these massive shootouts when they're trying to enter a community. This is not what's happening in Hisifi. It doesn't happen like that there. Mm. And so it's still that there's some kind of discourse around the war on drugs, which is ridiculous in the first place, having a war against yeah. a thing. But even though the, con the context is very different in Hisife, uh, it's still driven by this dominant narrative of fighting crime and legitimating the use of violence against certain populations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And often when the police are talking about, you know, what is the problem? Why is there so much violence? They often will reply to you, mm. oh, it's because of drugs. You know, the problem here is drugs, it's crack cocaine. It's, it's, there is this kind of uh, misconception, there is this kind of issues around, you know, it's never the powerful who are the criminals. People mm. never see, yeah. uh, you know, the crimes of the powerful. Um, they never see the harms of, of the powerful. They never, often there's a neglect of... Um, of the harms caused by yeah. institutions like the police themselves. You mentioned just um, a moment ago about the, the bandido, and I know in the same chapter you talk about how people who live in favelas often fear being perceived as a bandido, and I know this word, it doesn't comfortably translate into English. It, I mean, directly it's bandit, and most people say criminal, but it's kind of this more all-round bad guy that could be a cheat or a, use violence and to get one over on somebody. Um how how do you think being perceived or the worry about being perceived as a bandido um, affects a person's life chances and how it how does it dictate mm -hmm. police interactions with those thought to be a bandido or or, or a trafficante, which is a, like mm -hmm. a drug dealer? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this this is 
this is really problematic. I know, you know, in Brazilian mm. law, uh, you know, Brazil, Brazilian drug law um, doesn't even specify things like, um, uh, you know, the quantity of drugs that you would have to have in your possession to be considered uh, a drug trafficker. Um, so actually, yeah. that is completely down to police discretion, which is um, really problematic. So, you know, you have um, very young people with very, maybe very small, very small amounts of drugs who are then mm -hmm. criminalized as um, traficantes or, you know, drug traffickers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, this kind of opens up the room for lots of institutional racism and for classifying more and more people as a serious drug, uh, offenders. Um, yeah. so it, it has serious implications, you know, it does mean, mm. uh, for some people, you know, uh, uh, your, uh, your, a, a lifetime in, in, in relation to the criminal justice system. It does mean also limited job opportunities. Uh, you know, people are very keen to to move away from this, this image of, of the bandido. Um, mm. And sometimes this has to be done for some people. You know, it happens through religious institutions where they try to uh, associate themselves with a different kind of identity. Um, some For some people, it's, it's asso trying to associate themselves with the, the identity of the worker because that kind of uh, is a way of constructing yourself as as deserving and and moving away from from this idea that yeah. you might be a bandit so you know sometimes people are keen to show you that they have uh, carteira de trabalhador which is like a, a, mm. a, an ID card for for workers you know some kind of it's something like a national insurance number or something like that to show look I am a registered worker you know I'm not a bandit yeah. I'm not in this this life of crime um, and so it's a, in some ways it's a way of constructing um, their identity um, but you know this this whole uh, I'm really interested in this this notion of, of banditry you know and, and the, the, mm. the historical construction of, of the bandit you know which you know it really can be traced back to to the era of the cangasso in uh, in the northeast of Brazil um, mm -hmm. you know back uh, when there were uh, you know serious water shortages and and you know many people had to migrate from the countryside to cities or to other parts of the country uh, where they could access jobs um, you know so so in some ways is the 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 bandits uh, so the cangasso for example they they were um, these, these figures in some ways, the kind of the robbing hoods in some ways uh, that emerged mm. at that uh, time, you know, talking about hundreds of years ago, well, not hundred, over a hundred years ago, um, mm. who um, were walking in bands, you know, bands of, of men and that were pillaging um, and stealing from, um, from uh, land aristocrats, uh, but also... Um, you know, it's a history that's linked to the history of capitalism, it's a history that's linked to the history of hunger, you know. So these are times yeah. where there's no water, there, is, there are serious hardships, um, and, and there is hunger, and, and people are trying to find other ways of survival. Um, and, and so the Cangasso in some ways was, was this, um, this kind of the birth of 
the the bandit. But we are talking here about uh, you know Brazil was still like an agrarian society at that time, and and things have really changed. You know we've really moved on now. We we've we are you know um, you know we've gone through our version of the industrial revolution we have most of mm. our population living in cities um and so you know the bandit now is no longer uh that the the you know is no longer associated with um some sort of um uh rural uh group it's you know bandits now are, are really they can be Depends who's speaking, I suppose. Who who is defining? Yeah. You know, if you if you're having the far right define who's the bandit, they will tell you it's the workers' party or the leftists, the activists, <laughs> the indigenous. Yeah. Um, if you have people in the favelas or in the communities try defining who is the bandit uh, or the bandido, yeah. um, you know, th- these might be armed groups, militias. Um, so in some ways, it's going to depend on the positionality of the definer. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's really interesting how these socially constructed ideas change over time and locality as well. You mentioned how these Robin Hood style groups of bandidos formed, but then after the eventual abolition of slavery, certain groups were criminalized to maintain the racialized hierarchy that had been in place for centuries and naturalized, it seemed so normal. And how it's interesting that we still hear phrases like bandido bon e bandido morto meaning the only good criminal is the dead criminal and obviously this is linked to colonial phrases such as the only good indian is a dead indian yeah yeah and then also this link between how if you are a bandido or seen as a bandido then you're not seen as being deserving of rights and how we especially in the west see human rights as this set of fundamental freedoms preserved as the birthright for every person but in brazil there seems to be multiple understandings or interpretations of what human rights are and who are deserving of them yes yeah absolutely yeah um and also i think you know a lot of these discourses you know they are uh, they are misappropriated and misused in in completely different ways Mm. i think this example uh, that you gave, you know, the bandido bon is bandido morto, a good thief, a yeah. good, a good, thief, um, a good criminal is a dead criminal. You know, that is that yeah. is a really um, a good example, and it's, it's certainly something that we hear a lot in Brazil, um, and and that's part of the the you know the discourses of the far right and conservative groups. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, and just one last thing before we move on to the the final section. Um, <laughs> In the extract you just gave us, Sil Antonio describes his time in prison as well yeah. and how he became a chaveiro or a, yeah. a key holder. Sure. And um, I know that Dr. Sasha Dark has done a lot of work specifically on this and uh, his ethnographies in prison. But for those who are not familiar with the Brazilian prison system, could you just explain the very particular role given to the chaveiro and how that might be very different to other places? Sure. Um, so... I think this again. There is going to be some uh, diversity in different parts of Brazil, mm-hmm. in different regions, but essentially the chaveiro is the key holder in some ways. He's he's the person. He's an, a prison inmate who has responsibilities as if he was some sort of prison guard. So we are talking about a context in which there are very few guards, there are overcrowded jails, um, and the only way for uh, uh, 
things to get done inside the prison is for some of the prisoners to to have some roles. Uh, mm. And sometimes this may be maintaining order. Sometimes it may be distributing resources. Um, so in the case of Sir Antonio, he, he, he claimed that he was elected by the other prisoners. Mm. He, he, you know, he had to offer some kind of protection to prisoners. Uh, it, it, in some ways, it's what Sasha, Sasha Dark talks about, you know, this, this kind of self-governance within Brazilian prisons, yeah. uh, Brazilian prisons as a consequence of, of uh, you know, mass incarceration, uh, you know, and a, a consequence of the precarious conditions and overcrowding that you have within prisons. So... Um, in the prison, in the Pernambucan prisons, you know, they, the Chaveiros might manage uh, prison wings um, as if they were a market. So, you know, within prisons, um, you know, prisoners sometimes don't have basic things like, you know, access to food or a mattress or bedding or things like that. Um, so all of those things circulate within prisons. They are sold as if there was a, a there's an internal market, you know, and of course at inflated mm -hmm. prices, you know, some prisoners have to pay for jails, uh, for, for cell space within the internal market of the prison. Yeah. Um, which is just... It's crazy, you know. So, 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 in some ways, the Chavero tries to manage some of those transactions that happen informally, uh, and uh, between prisoners, and also between prisoners and outsiders. You know, that includes um, food, clothing, drug sales, and so on. Um, yeah. and, and of course, you know, the authorities are complacent with this practice. You know, they are aware that they, they cannot eliminate this practice in some ways. That they almost incentivize the practice. Um, hmm. You know, yeah. I, I, I've come to think, uh, you know, over the years that I am really becoming more and more of an abolitionist. You know, I think we really yeah. need to take um, abolitionist perspectives um, seriously um, and yeah. really think about, you know, um, decarceration, demilitarization. Um, mm -hmm. And that is really because of uh, of a number of those those cases that I've come across in my research, like um, Seu Antonio. Yeah. Well, I have to have to get you back on another time to talk about decarcerating Brazil's prisons. I think that would be <laughs> a great topic. I think a lot of people would be interested in. <laughs> Great. So the last section is around impact and what you're hoping to achieve with the project overall. And um, I just wanted to ask, with the with the PhD, it's such a long, detailed process. And although, I mean, although you managed it in just three years and had a baby while you're doing it, so I can only presume there was some kind of super criminology machine sent from the future to <laughs> show the rest of us off. I think um, but most people it takes much longer than that um, with no children. So. Uh, what I wanted to ask you is how do you feel about taking the very specific detailed work um, and take and bring it to a wider audience and how do you how do you find the process of transitioning PhD to your first book yeah um, you know I did actually take a year completely off the PhD after I had my first child um, so right while I was doing the PhD I did it in three years, but I had a, an extra year of just maternity leave, so it was ah, four okay. years. But um, this is a this is a, it's an important question actually, and I think it's something that I'm still um, working on. Which is, uh, mm. you know, I, I think as any human being, you're balancing a lot of different things in your life. 
um, when you yeah. do a PhD, you know, you do have your own life, your which carries on happening while you're doing the PhD. You know, you move house, you fall in love, you break up, you. <laughs> Uh, you get ill, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen in your personal life while you're doing a PhD. And I think um, yeah. you're juggling those things with trying to produce new knowledge, with trying to become a writer uh, and trying to juggle all these pressures, you know, to have an impact in the real world. And sometimes this this is not this is not always something that you can measure straight away how our funders would love mm -hmm. us to prove with some <laughs> kind of evidence yeah. what impact we had um and i think in some ways i'm starting to collect now the fruits of the work that i've been doing for a number of years you know so some of the publications are coming mm -hmm. out now um some of the uh, obviously when people read this work and they invite you to do public lectures and they invite you to do uh you know video lectures and so on and you begin to reach a, a wider audience but I think this is something that we are under a lot of pressure to achieve but at the same time we've got to have patience and kind of take one step at yeah. a time um, to do some of those things um, so yeah for me I'm still trying to work out really how how to do this you know how is it that I yeah. can have um, impact in the world but I do think that, um, you know, if the work does then become translated into other forms, like what we're doing now, you know, trying to uh, have this conversation and this podcast. I think yeah. that then, the, the, you know, this day and does begin to reach a wider audience uh, and get translated into different form. You know, I was at a talk, I don't know, I think it's about six months ago. Um, at SOAS, mm -hmm. where a, a fantastic professor was um, telling us how her colleague, David Harvey, who I imagine many of us would know, wrote fantastic books about the history of neoliberalism, um, very uh, prominent academic, um, had been told that... Um, you know, the university was not sure what the impact of his research was. Um, and I thought, mm. this is mad. You know, everybody has read <laughs> David Harvey. His work is amazing, so influential. And there are thousands of students and people reading his work and who are then going out into the world and working and doing all kinds of different jobs. Um, and so, yes, I mean, I don't, you know, would Michel Foucault be having the same uh, questions, you know, yeah. uh, would he have been able to measure the impact of, of uh, discipline and punish? <laughs> I don't know, but you know, it's a very influential <laughs> book. It's, it's been very, yeah. um, very informative and has changed a lot of people's lives. Yeah, yeah, you make a really good point. But now I wanted to ask you if you were back in Hasifi now and you could have a room full of people, who would you put in there and what would you be saying to them in terms of your key messages from your book? Sure. I, I think I would really emphasize that there's no point in jailing people for minor drug offenses, mm. that we really need to get rid of any targets that focus on drug apprehensions. Um, I would also like to say to them that, you know, it seems to me that this whole idea of modernization, of 
using technology technology to monitor specific offenses, mm. specifically drug offenses, you know, this can simply exacerbate criminalization uh, and, and, and exacerbate the number of people in prisons in an unsustainable way. And, you know, we, we really, if we want to tackle violence, we need to address the social inequalities, the structural context that mm. is pushing people into precarious underground economies. We need to, if we want to tackle violence, why don't we start by tackling police violence? Why don't we start by tackling the violence of uh, malicious extortion groups? Not necessarily the young person uh, who is on the streets uh, just because they're out at night late and so on. I suppose the, the, the message really is that um, you know, securitization means different things for different people, but often increasing securitization means more insecurity. You know, focus on things like demilitarizing. We need to focus on uh, trying to build a more inclusive society, uh, trying to reduce the social hierarchies um, that are causing more conflict and more resentment and more problems Um for, for all of us. Yeah, well, I'm, sentiments that I, we can all get behind, I think that's for sure. Um, great, so where can people find the book? Um, would If listeners would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Sure. Um, so uh, Routledge is uh, publishing the book. It's actually going to be out uh, in print in a couple of weeks. Uh, it is going to be available as an ebook, and also you can get a hard copy. The paperback is due to come out next year, and that will be a lot more accessible for most people. Uh, yeah. But anyone that um, wants to hear more about my work uh, or wants to talk about my previous work I do have some articles that I can share with people yeah so they can contact me via my institutional um, email account uh, which is r.p.cavalcanti at brighton.ac.uk so that's uh, University of Brighton where I work are you are you currently looking for new PhD students in this area and and what's next for you Sure, I would love um, new PhD students, anyone who is interested in uh, in Brazil, but also post-colonial societies, anyone who is interested in sort of the broad themes of my work, I suppose, which is, um, mm-hmm. you know, violence, armed violence, ethnographic work. Uh, I have a current interest and in a, a current pilot project looking into uh, the criminalization of activists and looking at the effects right. of authoritarian governance. So if anyone mm-hmm. is interested in, in any of those topics as well, please do contact me. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on, on Justice Focus and making time to share your thoughts. I, I really appreciate it. I'm sure many other people will be looking forward to reading your book. Such an interesting topic. And thank you so much. Good luck with the book, which is A Southern Criminology of Violence, Youth and Policing. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure speaking with you. I really enjoyed it. Okay, so that's EP1 done. I hope you enjoyed it. 
For the next few episodes, I'm going to be talking with experts working on how to tackle the coronavirus across justice systems. So the format will be a little different while we try to get those important messages out. So with that in mind, please like and subscribe to Justice Focus and share it with all those people involved in the criminal justice system. Cheers. Cheers.